Welcome to another episode of Skeptics and Seekers. I'm your host, David the Skeptic, and I'm joined by the other guy. Yep, I'm Dale, representing the Christian or Seeker side. Yeah, and uh, because today we are revisiting the Trinity, and it didn't really work out so well the last time. I think I know why. There were two dudes talking about the Trinity. I think we fixed it. Today, we have a third member of the panel, Andrew Knight, representing the other part of the Trinity. How you doing? Hey, guys, I'm just here to change water to wine. Uh, you know, the rest of the show is up to you. See, I'm, I'm a little uncomfortable being included in an unholy Trinity with two skeptics. I don't know, but... but uh... <laughs> God, God is omnipresent. Uh, you know, you can't have an unholy trinity. We're, we're. Uh... <laughs> you guys, so here's, you guys here's the deal. This is gonna be a this is gonna be a freaking long show, guys. So uh, let's let's jump in. But first, I want to say uh, thanks to all the people who uh, joined the discussion uh, on the blog this past week. We posted a blog without a podcast. And a few of you joined in for some discussion, uh, and we posted our blog early. So some of you have already read this week's blog. It's 6,000 words between uh, both uh, Dell and myself. So thank you for uh, getting a head start on that. Uh, I did not find any posts or questions to share. So we are going to jump right in uh, and get into this podcast. So I'm going to throw it over to Dale right now as he explains the philosophical uh, and logical coherence aspect of the Trinity and why we should care. Dale. Gotcha. Okay. So um, basically this week, um, my claim that I'm trying to establish is that the Christian doctrine of the Trinity and the and the Incarnation, uh, at least in the models that I'm going to be advancing for, um, are both logically coherent and biblically consistent. Um, so that that's my aim uh, in doing this show. That's my claim. And just to give the so there was uh, David in his blog uh, sort of complained that this was way over his head. Um, he mentioned that even Andrew had some, some trouble understanding exactly what I'm doing. So I, I want to outline in a couple sentences, what, what is my, this notion of the coherence of the Trinity and incarnation for dummies, so to speak, not saying you guys are dummies, but, um, he, oh, no. so I think, I think okay. we, I think we heard what you said. Yeah. Uh, it's, <laughs> it's the books that you know, like Christians for dummies or yeah, Christianity no, for dummies. Um, okay, so, okay, good. <laughs> so with the Old Testament, um, what did I do? So I established, look, there are multiple, God is seen as a complex unity. There are multiple individuals um, that share the same divine identity under the name Yahweh. Um, there are also numerous times where God is said to assume human form temporarily on earth. Then we get to the New Testament, and again, we have the Old Testament message confirmed. They're only further clarified. There are three individuals, uh, Jesus, God the Father, or Hotheos, uh, and the Holy Spirit, uh, who are all said to share the divine identity. Under the name Yahweh, they are worthy of worship. So this is the biblical data. Three individuals, one divine identity, or one divine name. Then 
we get into the uh, philosophical case uh, in later centuries. And this is where we start philosophizing and asking, okay, well, what, what does this mean? And uh, the dummy version would be this. Okay, well, there's three individuals. I say that those three individuals are uh, that stand in I-thou relationships are three persons in the modern psychological sense. Um, and I would argue even goes back to ancient times. Okay, that's the three part. Well, what's the one part? And they're one being or one substance. This is the traditional Nicene Creed understanding. That explains how could you have a, a same divine identity? You're one substance. Um, so basically, you're, you're three minds or persons within one spiritual substance, one soul. So that's the Trinity um, in a nutshell uh, that I'm going to be arguing for. So, so let's sort of get get into some details now for the Trinity. And it's important to understand that the doctrine of the Trinity is independent of the question of the incarnation. The Trinity could be coherent, even if the incarnation isn't, or the incarnation never happened. It, it is a separate question, you know. So in terms of the historical perspective, the first chronological philosophical model that really emerged was called Logos Christology. Uh, this came about in the second century. It's, it obviously derives from the Gospel of John's prologue. You know, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word uh, was with God, and the Word was God. Um, so this sort of com this notion combines the notion of the Memra or the Word of God uh, in the Gospel of John, and combines it with the pagan idea from Philo of Alexandria, like the the notion of the Logos as uh, the divine rational principle. Uh, that's sort of personified as a second god. Um, so that that's really what the the logos, the early church fathers from the second century thought, and that's how they understood the the Trinity and how it worked in terms of Jesus' divinity and that sort of thing. Um, by the time we get to the third century, I wanted to highlight. Obviously, I'm being selective. I'm not giving a, a full history lesson or mentioning every heretic group like the Gnostics and that sort of thing, but I'm focusing on the historical precedents for the mo for the modern models that we have. So the first bunch of quote-unquote heretics um, that I want to bring up that are not, that I'm not sure are damnable heretics, and we'll discuss the difference there, are modalists. So, you know, Sabellianism, Monarchianism, um, these are people that sort of, they stress, they want to stress the oneness of God. God having this one divine identity, being this one thing, this one substance. And they stress this even at the expense of accepting the d distinctiveness of the three individuals in the Godhead. Um, they want to preserve what's called the divine monarchy at all costs. And, well, obviously this is unbiblical, right? It, it doesn't... It doesn't honor the fact that we have discovered the Bible allows for three distinct individuals that stand in I-thou relations, right? Jesus talk, says you to God the Father. He doesn't say I, me, myself. Um, so that so that's the problem. There's this modalism, and it basically just says, look, God, what God and God, God the Father, God the Son, and the Holy Spirit are, are just different modes that God the Father, the one person, exists in. So... The typical analogy to this is water. It comes in the form or mode of ice as a solid. It comes in the form or mode of liquid as water and can be in a gas form. Um, well, this this is not 
this is not a biblical notion of the Trinity. If I myself used this analogy uh, back in the day, so um, yeah, um, just understand that this is technically speaking a heresy. Uh, I'm not sure if you're damned if you have this mistaken notion. I, I think I was saved, even though I was a modalist uh, unwittingly back in the day. Um, but it's certainly unbiblical. It, it doesn't acknowledge that there are three distinct individuals that are said to be divine in the Bible. Then on the opposite end, we have Arianism. And this is a damnable heresy. Um, and I'll explain basically the reason why is because the Bible, under my notion of defining Christianity proper, the Bible has an explicit command. You, in Romans 10, you confess that Jesus is Lord. And in context, we know that saying is Yahweh, is God. Arianism came about in the early fourth century. And really, it's it's it acknowledges fully, hey, there are three distinct individuals or persons um but they're not i'm i'm going to deny jesus divinity uh they're not united in one being or one substance so so that's that's the problem and that's what ultimately led to the to the nicene creed um you know and in, in coming up to solve this problem so so this is sort of the historical background you can see sort of the two poles um, are they united in one substance, or are they three distinct individuals, or are they both? And obviously the, the biblical answer is they are both. Um, okay, so let's move to the modern era. Um, what are various Trinitarian models? And there are two broad categories to understand how the Trinity works today. So the first is called Latin, or antisocial Trinitarianism. Um, Anti-social tr Trinitarianism um, is sort of, it's again, it's sort of like the modalist. It, it stresses the oneness of the substance of the Father, um, even at the expense of uh, saying that they're, you know, the distinct individuals. So it, it, it'll say, look, there, there aren't really uh, distinct wills or distinct persons in the modern psychological sense um, within the Godhead, but what there are is there's the one God, there's the one will, the one intellect, the one divine mind, and then certain aspects, or as Aquinas would put it, uh, relations within God uh, constitute God the Son and the Holy Spirit. So typically they'll say, well, look, God understands himself or he knows himself. That's God the Son. Um, God loves himself or God has a divine will. Holy Spirit, there you go. Um, and now, obviously, this is problematic because, number one, relations aren't technically persons, right? Relations don't stand in causal relations with things like God the Son. In the Bible, we're told uh, creation was done through the Son. God the Son stood in causal relations. Relations don't stand in I-thou relationships with each other. Um, which obviously is the case between Jesus. Je Jesus wasn't praying to himself in the Garden of Gethsemane. He was praying to God the Father uh, as a distinct person. Um, you know, relations can't love each other, and, and they, there's a whole relations aren't persons. This is just philosophically obvious. They're not identical to each other. Um, so typically, what antisocial Trinitarians will do is they'll just say, I, I know that, but but somehow. Uh, with God, God is unique in some way. His relations constitute fully fleshed out persons in some ad hoc way. Um, now, 
even on that, that leads to two further problems. So the, the first one is that, well, look, well, then this leads to an infinite regress of divine persons, trinities within trinities, because, okay, God the Father understands or knows himself and loves himself. Boom, God the Son, God uh, and uh, the Holy Spirit. Okay, well, then God the Son, he understands himself. He has these relations too. He understands himself. He loves himself. Boom, two more people. And same for the Holy Spirit. So, and so on and so forth out to infinity. So um, I think this is a real problem. And, and even antisocial Trinitarians like Thomas Aquinas, who's sort of the strongest uh, proponent of this, he recognized this issue as well. And he just sort of, in order to solve it, he became a modalist, basically. He just said, well, they, they're not really distinct persons they, they just stop they just stop um and at relations or something like that and yeah he, he basically reduces back down to modalism to solve the problem um so so yeah i don't think uh anti-socialism is a good model for the trinity uh it doesn't make sense we have to go with what's called a social trinitarian model and these models stress the distinct uh individuals of the the godhead um, without denying the oneness um, of God, uh, or at least that's the aim. Obviously, the danger with this is if you take it too far, you risk tritheism or paganism. Um, so with social Trinitarianism, there are basically three fundamental types of social Trinitarian model. The first is what's called functional monotheism, and this is, is, is advanced by um, Dr. Richard Swinburne, and I, I put a link to his video so you can hear um, his notion for yourselves in a 10-minute video and under the Closer to Truth blogs. Um, but basically, look, so, so Swinburne believes this. He believes, okay, the, the Trinity, there are three distinct centers of self-consciousness or individuals or persons within the Godhead. Beautiful, you're biblical, I, I love it, uh, Swinburne, good for you. Um, but uh, they're all within one unified, indivisible, collective substance, um, such as a soul. Beautiful, biblical, I love it, you're, I'm on the same page. Here's where he goes wrong. He then says that the three persons are actually three separate substances within this overall substance. So there are four substances in the Trinity. and this just doesn't make sense. If, if, if the three persons of the Trinity are actually outright substances in themselves, then that's just tritheism. Um, there's, there's nothing about the fact that the three substances or beings uh, cooperate with each other and they, they, they it's, it's logically impossible, according to Swinburne, because they're maximal great beings, it, it's impossible for them to disagree or be at odds and, and that sort of thing. But still, even assuming that, that doesn't constitute uh, a sort of collective substance. That just constitutes a divine council that David loves to, to think is in the Old Testament and that sort of thing. It's tritheism. It's a council uh, of tritheism that's got their act that's basically got their act together. They never disagree, blah, blah, blah. Oh, well, that's not one being. That's not a single substance. So this just really denies that God is one. And, and this is really the problem with this view. Now, um, what I say is, is Richard Swinburne going to hell? Is he damned to hell? Is he a damned heretic? In other words, I, I definitely think that his view logically entails paganism or tritheism, which is a damnable heresy. However, I, I can include Richard Swinburne as being saved because 
he does he's ignorant of the fact that this is the logical implication. So going back to the Bible thing, remember, we've got three individuals and one divine identity. Swinburne's model, even though logically it violates this, in his mind it doesn't because he thinks that there's a collective one substance. Okay, great. They share the divine identity. And he recognizes that there are three distinct individuals who are God or divine. Um, boom, he, he supports the Bible. He, he believes, he confesses Jesus is Lord, and he confesses that there is one God. Um, he just doesn't understand, I would say, he just doesn't understand the logical implications of his view that actually it leads to a contradiction between those. So, so long as Richard Swinburne is ignorant that his view is actually tritheism, he could be saved because uh, he, f- he fulfills the biblical criteria. If he does understand the logical implications of, the view, of his view, then he's going to hell. He's, he's damned. He, he's supporting paganism. Uh, so I don't know if that, if that helps um, you guys in understanding the difference between a heretic versus a damned heretic um, based on you know my minimalist criteria of Christianity proper in the Bible. But I just wanted to give that for you guys to maybe help illustrate that a bit. Um, okay, so the second form of social Trinitarianism is group mind monotheism. And this one actually has, even though I disagree with it, and I think there are some issues or problems that need to be worked out, this one does sound plausible. It, something like this might be true. Um, this is advanced by Brian Lefto. Again, he's in the source closer to truth, so you can hear him explain this in his own words. But Basically, this capital this is a modern version of the old Logos Christology, where the Son is begottener and uh, the Holy Spirit derive from God the Father. And he says, well, look, medically, there are um, what are called split brain experiments. And I, I mentioned this in my uh, Substance Dualism Part 1 series, where some, some people, medical experts, when you separate the left and right hemispheres, the, these are called sub-minds. Um, and when you separate the connections between them in uh, whatever way they do that, sometimes people, it, it's almost like the two halves of the brains are acting independently of each other. It's, it's almost like they become two full minds within the one being or the one person. Uh, now, that interpretation is controversial. As I argue, I disagree with that. I don't think it make, that's logically incoherent. Um, in my, it doesn't, a person cannot have more than one mind, I would say. Um, But on this view, this view is accepting this interpretation. So how would this work if this interpretation of, okay, you can have two minds within one person or three minds within one person. Basically what it says is, look, there was this, at, at the very beginning, there is, without creation, there is this one super consciousness. Uh, and in order to be biblically faithful, you have to say that this is God the Father. Then, at the moment of creation, uh, this supermind dissolves into three separate minds. So God the Father's mind is preserved uh, through this dissolving, and two, you know, two sub-minds emerge as full minds, God the Son and the Holy Spirit. Um, this is sort of the model of, of group mind uh, monotheism that Dr. Brian has left, um, that uh, Leftow is arguing for here. Um, so, so yeah, I, I think in the first place, I, I, as I said, I disagree with the fact that you can have multiple minds in one person. I tend to equate um, one mind is correlated to one person. So there's that issue. 
Um, there's also the issue of, well, how exactly does a superconscious of God the Father get preserved through this dissolving process? Really, it should be there's a fourth divine person, the God, the supermind, and that dissolves, and then the subminds, three subminds emerge, God the Father, uh, God the Son, and the, and the Holy Spirit as full-fledged minds of themselves. Um, so I, I don't see how this model would allow for the preservation of the supermind as God the Father into, you know, the uh, uh, developed sub-mind that's become a mind. Um, so yeah, the, these are sort of um, the issues with this. It, it really ends up with, with, through this dissolving process, you really end up with, look, there are three separate minds, and three separate minds are three separate persons or and or beings. Um, so again, you, you actually end up with tritheism. Um, uh, you're in the same boat as functional monotheism here, if, if the, the presuppositions that I'm giving are, are true. Uh, so that's that's sort of some some of the things that you need to think about with this group mind monotheism uh, aspect, or some of the potential objections one could raise. Finally, okay, uh, the model that I go for, Trinity monotheism. Um, so basically, this is radically simple, in my opinion, and fully biblically consistent, um, even if it does contradict some later creeds. Um, so, for example, um, creedally speaking, I'm going to be, you're going to find out I'm a heretic. I, I violate some, I'm an advocate of not not partialism, the, the official heresy, but uh, some, many Christians would call me a, uh, a heretic that advances partialism. I think that, look, the Trinity or the Godhead alone is God. Only the Trinity, uh, which is not um, a fourth person, but is just the combination of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. So in effect, God the Son is one-third of God. He is of the Trinity. The, the, only the Trinity is Yahweh. So when you're reading the Old Testament or the Bible, whenever it says God or Yahweh, uh, it's actually referring to the Trinity. Um, unless you see, and again, the Bible's not precise, so the way you can identify if it's referring to God the Father versus the entire Godhead, um, if you see the personal pronoun he, okay, well then that's God the Father, because tri the Trinity or the Godhead isn't one he, he's three he's. Um, so, so this is how Trinity monotheism says, look, there's only one God, that's the Trinity. That's the only instance of the complete or full divine nature, because part of the divine nature is that you are triune, you're, you're tri-personal. This is an essential property of the divine nature. Neither God the Father, none of the distinct individuals have this property. God the Father is not triune. Uh, God the Son is not triune. Um, so, so this is where I sort of violate the later creeds that some people would you know, point to and that sort of thing, but I don't care. I, there's nothing inconsistent with the Bible, and that's all I need to care about. Um, so under that, um, now God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit also have a divine nature. So under this view, there has to be at least two senses um, of what it means to have a divine nature. Um, so there's the full, complete divine nature proper, uh, that's the Trinity. But then it, it's also correct to speak of 
you know, God the Father is as, or God the Son is having a divine nature in that they share, you know, they, they, for example, have omnipresence, omnipotence, om, omniscience. These are, these are properties that can only exist within a person. Um, and in virtue of the persons having these properties, the Trinity as a whole also has these properties. Um, so, so yeah, um, so in the, in this sense, uh, how, how is it that the individual persons have the divine nature? So it's kind of like saying, look, well, part of a cat, um, a cat's skeleton or a cat's DNA can be said to display the feline nature in that they are indicative or distinctive of the cat kind or the feline kind. Um, and this is what we're saying God the Father are. They're, they share the divine nature in that they are unique uh, or representative of the divine kind, of the Trinitarian kind, the, the Yahweh kind. Um, and that's the sense that I would say God the Son had this divine nature. Um, so, so yeah, basically there, there are two senses that one can have a divine nature. One in which only applies to the Trinity, another which applies to the individual persons um, of the Trinity. And uh, yeah, that, that's my view. Some Christians that go by the creeds, that are bound by the creeds, may disagree with that. Now, biblically speaking, how does this make sense? There are verses that say something like Jesus is God or, um, you know, the Holy Spirit is divine and that sort of thing. So I sort of explain what it means with the divine, the Holy Spirit is divine. But if we say Jesus is God, is, is that wrong? Because remember, only the Trinity is God. And we just have to remember this is a language issue. What, what do we mean by is? There are at least five senses for that. And... It's not necessarily the case that God the Son is, uh, sorry, Jesus is God, me is an, I, um, a statement of identity. Um, we're not necessarily Jesus equals God. Um, it's more along the line of like Jesus, uh, Dale is king. Well, I'm, I'm not identical to the word king or something or to um, the property of being a king. I'm just saying, well, look, I'm serving that office uh, or I have that title. Um, or perhaps I have the property of acting regal or something like that. And that's what any Bible verses that say this. That's how I would interpret those um, under this model. Um, just And just to take a break, uh, just so I know, yes yes or no, is this making sense, guys? Is it, is it coming together for you guys, or is it still confusing for you? No. No. No, it's not making sense, or no, it's... No, it's, no. It's not making sense. Not making sense. But, 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 I mean, but, it's well said. I sense that it's very well said. <laughs> and, and Andrew, on, on your end, is, is is anything clicking a little bit better than when you read the blog? Or? Well, so I appreciated the blog. I think the, the point that I would leave for you guys, listeners, from my perspective, sorry if they're hearing the baby in the background. Uh, my problem with all of this is that this is just a, a sort of way to confuse the map with the place. It, it's just an intellectual exercise about trying to understand the nature of a thing that we haven't demonstrated exists. And, and so we can talk about ad infinitum all the possible ways that, that Christians might try to make sense of the Trinity. And just giving each of the philosophers that you mentioned their, their credit, 
I'm, I'm sure that they've thought about these things quite deeply before they wrote about them, just like you did. So taking nothing away from you. But if we, if we could do more than, uh, than just have a map of this idea, if there was some way to demonstrably prove one of these models for mm -hmm. the Trinity, then we wouldn't be having this conversation about who was right or who was wrong or whatever. We wouldn't have this problem of confusing the map for the place. And so for me, all of this is a non-starter because no matter what model you have for the Trinity, it's undemonstrable. Uh, yeah, I guess, so in terms of demonstrability, yeah, I, I take your point. And that's that's why it's the, the point of the blog is just demonstrating the logical coherence or at least attempt, that's my claim. As to, the tr as to whether it's true or not, um, well, in the first place, number one, there, if, it's, if something is logically incoherent, then that demonstrates that it's false. So in that sense, there is a demonstrative aspect. Um, secondly, in terms of demonstrating that the Trinity is true, uh, again, I can only do that indirectly. Um, although right, Richard, sure. Swinburne, Richard Swinburne tries to, to argue for it, um, a priori directly. So I, um, yeah. Swin, Swinburne's argument, I don't know if, if people saw that, but he basically says, look, it, it's greater to be to have active love. This is his assumption. Uh, just like Tony Costa said, it, it's better to be to actually to actualize love rather than just potentially love someone or something like that. So uh, that's the assumption I disagree with and why I don't like this argument. But on that assumption, he'll say, if, if that's true, then there has to be three and only three divine persons. It, it's sort of akin to, uh, in order to demonstrate selfless love. Um, and he'll say, well, well, look, if, if there's a husband and wife and they, they are so loving of each other, um, so obviously you need at least two, right? In order to actively love someone, there has to be another person that you love and they love you. Um, but this is selfish love. Um, if you're truly having selfless love, you would want... Uh, another person for the person you love to love and for that third person to love that that person that you love without you being involved because otherwise it's selfish um, so this is his argument of look there's there's at least three divine persons that you need and then he says well why limit it to three Occam's razor that's the simplest the minimal amount that you need to fulfill the criteria of having actualized selfless love um, is where you get the Trinity. Um, now, as I said, I, I don't buy that argument because of the assumption it, it's founded on. But given that assumption, that would demonstrate that God has to be a Trinity, I, I would say. Um, again, you would have to prove that God does exist and that sort of thing. But okay, okay. Um, I, I take your point that this isn't... Um, let, let me illustrate my model for the Trinity then with it, an analogy. So basically, look, can I interject just just for a second? I, I'm sorry, I, I won't do this again. No, but no I, I I do want to hear what you have to say. But even if you have the, to my point about confusing the map for the place, mm -hmm. I, I just want to reemphasize why demonstrating logical coherence doesn't actually help in my case. Well, at least I don't think it does. I haven't heard what you had to say, so maybe you can convince me. I'm not saying that you can't, mm -hmm. but. I can take an open space on a map and insert anything into it. And as, as long as it doesn't conflict with other things on the map, mm -hmm. uh, it's coherent. It just may not be true. Mm -hmm. 
And we actually see this in real life. We actually have examples of maps that lead people uh, along roads that uh, don't exist yet, right? Because um, they didn't get around to building the road in time for the map, right? that kind of thing. And so I'm not saying that you can't make a, a, a reasonable set of predictions about some trinity from the Bible. What I'm actually saying is that even if you can, arguments aren't evidence, and we're still left confusing the map for the place. Okay, so I'm sorry. Yeah. Thank you for letting me say that. No problem. And, and just for the audience's sake, I, what Andrew said is absolutely correct. But nothing in my blog proves that the Trinity is true. At, at most, um, it just uh, rebuts um, a, a skeptical argument that says it's false. Um, you know, as I said, if it's logically incoherent, then it's false. So if I can prove that it's coherent, that removes one objection for for disbelieving the Trinity, and that's that's all I'll be able to to get to in this blog. I, nothing I'll, I'll say today will will prove that the Trinity is true. So yeah, yeah, I think that's a fair point to to raise. But okay, going back to the logical coherence. So I want to try and bring this together because you're saying you guys are saying that it's not making sense. So so let me put it this way. This is very well, simple. So I there's there's some very specific things that don't make sense to me. And so when I get into my counter uh, case, I'll, I'll illuminate on the okay. things that don't make sense. Uh, so, but the, but the model, insofar as I've explained it, you're getting what I'm saying, I guess, is right. Uh, well, there was, there was actually a section uh, in there. Uh, I'd have to... Okay. Okay. Because you, you also you also had it in your blog, and I I was listening very carefully, and uh, my eyes glazed over again uh, <laughs> when it when it got there, and I realized, yeah, I don't I don't I don't get it. Oh yeah, it was the section on the um, the um, infinite regress. Oh. I still do not understand how. Uh, anti-social trinitarianism leads to infinite regress, and I've tried very hard to understand that. That, that just didn't—it's not clicking. Okay, um, so just to go back, so so think of it this way, right? So, what what are the other two people? Um, there, there's anti-social trinitarians will say, look, there's um, within God, He has certain subsisting relations, right? He He knows Himself. Uh, he loves himself. And in some mysterious way that makes no sense, um, anti-social Trinitarian, to me at least, anti-social Trinitarians like Keith Ward will, will say that these relations actually constitute full divine persons, a fully fleshed out person in a modern psychological sense in some mysterious way that obviously doesn't happen with humans, like I, I know myself, I, I'm not a trinity. I, I, I love myself, I, I hope. Um, you know, I, I'm not a trinity of persons within my one physical body or one soul or something like that. So God is somehow unique in this sense. But here's where it leads to the infinite regress because, okay, well, then if you say that's what happened, well, then God the Son knows himself as a divine person. He he loves himself. So then those relations within God the Son have to pop up two more divine persons. And the same same deal with the Holy Spirit. He knows himself. He loves himself. Uh, boom, you've got two more divine people. Then those two people, they know themselves. They love themselves. Boom, you've got two more and so on. And does that... Makes sense as to okay, this. Okay, so it's suggesting that the 
father-son relationship is a person distinct from either the father or the son? Um, so so this, put it this way, the son is a relation. The, the son doesn't exist in the first place. It, it's There's only God the father he, to speak in this. You know what? You should sort of enact. I've, I've glanced over again. I, okay. All right. Well, I, try. I think you've driven a dagger in my brain. Go ahead and, uh, and finish. I will try to get this repaired uh, by the time I, okay. uh, I need to rebut. Okay. So... so um, for those of you guys in the audience with your eyes glazed over, uh, probably Sarah, uh, I know she cut up the, the fact that I wouldn't be able to make this make sense. So here's my last attempt. How, my model, let me explain it this way. I think there are three centers of self-consciousness, that, you know, three sets of faculties sufficient for personhood, whatever that is. They have free will, they're moral agents, whatever, they're intelligent. Uh, whatever you define a person as, uh, whatever sets of faculties are necessary and sufficient for being considered a person, there are three of those sets of faculties contained within one soul, one spiritual substance, one being, God. Um, so this is um, how this is in a nutshell what my model is. And here's a helpful analogy: uh, the pagan god. Uh, the pagan uh, dog that guards Hades, Kerberos. Look, Kerberos was a three-headed dog. Severus. Um, no, Kerberos is the proper. That I pronounce it Severus as well, but uh, the proper pronouncing is Kerberos. Um, but yeah, it's uh, look. He's a three-headed dog uh, in one dog body. So he's one, clearly one being. He's one physical substance, and he's got three centers uh, of three sets of faculties sufficient for dog personhood. You know, dogs aren't persons, but a dog personhood, whatever. Okay, well, well, then great. Then you help me out even more. If you want to say dogs are persons, then you can understand it even better. Um, So, so great. Three, three sets of persons we can eat. They stand in I, thou relations. I can name them Jim, Bob Jones, Bob and, and uh, Johnny. Um, hey, Johnny, what, what do you got in your mouth there? What are you eating? Uh, I don't know, uh, Jim Bob, I'm, what are you eating? And stuff like that, right? So this this illustrates the model perfectly. All you have to do is extrapolate and say, okay, well, let's pretend they're not a set of faculties sufficient for dog person. <laughs> <laughs> Redneck Cerberus, go ahead. <laughs> I got Got this truck tire over here. It's my mom when I was growing up. If it was redneck Cerberus, he would be drinking, not eating. Sorry. 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 No, no problem. Redneck. Well, you can blame my mom for that. When I was growing up, she was hooked on the Waltons, and I, I always used to make fun of that Jim Bob guy. So that's. Pretty... Um, but I thought for sure that the other name for Severus was going to be Bubba. I mean, that was. <laughs> that was that was a, wasn't that John Boy, not Jim Bob? No, there's John. Or was there a Jim so... Bob? Yeah, Jim Bob. Oh, was there really? Wow. Yeah, Jim Bob's the really dumb one. I just remember me and my brother hated like growing up. But um, <laughs> anyways, um. <laughs> I'm, I'm punch drunk and I haven't even gotten started. This is, okay, is going to so, be a long episode. So, so, uh, so guys, uh, Ker- Kerberos, uh, so he's got three sets of faculties sufficient for personhood. Now let's present, pretend they're not dog persons, but they're actual persons. And if you equate persons and dog persons, so much the better. Great. We've got three peeps, 
And then, okay, let's kill him. He's no longer a physical substance, but now he's one soul. Three sets of faculties within one spiritual substance or soul. Boom, you've got the Trinity. Um, now does that, uh, hopefully that makes sense. That That's my model of the Trinity. Um, and there's one last aspect uh, of the issue of subordinationism. Um, so this is goes back to the Nicene Creed. It goes back to Logos Christology. And it's this notion that the Father begets the Son, uh, and the Holy Spirit proceedeth, proceedeth from God the Father. So God the Father is unbegotten, and the rest of the God the Son and uh, God the Holy Spirit derive from God the Father. Um, I don't believe this, even though it's in the creeds and it, it, it goes back to um, you know the earliest model, Logos Christology. Um, I think that's a pagan notion, and it, it, it does, David raises a good point. It, this almost, it, it's greater to exist underived than derived, in my opinion. So saying that the, the two other divine persons of the Trinity are derived is, it doesn't sit easy with me. It, it, it's possible that the, something like this could be true, but I, I'm uncomfortable with it. And I would just say that... Um, Verses in the Bible that seem to indicate this der derivation, like when, it, when it's talking about Jesus being begotten or something like that, that, that's talking about in his human form today, I've begotten you and that sort of thing. It's not, it's not speaking of um, an ontological derivation of God the Son from God the Father. So when we read verses in the Bible that speak of sort of God the Son subor subordinating to God the Father, you know, at the end, God... Uh, God Jesus will submit to the Father, and God will be made all in all, and that sort of thing. There's a distinction between the ontological trinity and the functional trinity, or the divine economy, sometimes said to use to represent the uh, functional trinity. So the, in terms of the ontological trinity, I believe all three are totally equal. There is no subordination in the Godhead at all. They're all three sets of faculties, one soul, and they're perfectly equal with each other. Now, functionally, once God decides to create, the divine economy takes over and the three persons of the Trinity take on assigned roles. So the second person in the Trinity, it's his role to become incarnate, die and rise from the dead um, for our sins, um, you know, rule during the Messianic era. Um, it's God the Father's to, to sit enthroned in heaven and, and, and reign as the sovereign ruler in the heavens and that sort of thing. Uh, and it's the Holy Spirit's role to take over after uh, the Messiah does his work, the second person the does his work, and to uh, facilitate God's kingdom. So it, it's talking about functional roles, and they, they choose to subordinate themselves functionally. It's not talking about that there's an ontological difference in the Trinity and that God the Son and God the Holy Spirit are somehow less than um, or, you know, derived from God the Father. I don't believe that is what the Bible uh, is saying there. So I, I reject subordinationism. Um, I, I, I'm not 100% dogmatic. I wouldn't say it's totally wrong. There are verses that indicate at least some kind of subordinationism, but my interpretation of that is that's referring to the divine economy or the functional trinity, not the ontic or ontological uh, trinity. So that that's everything on the trinity. Um, what would you, so, so David, what do you want to do? Do you want to 
go to discussion on the Trinity first before I go to the incarnation, or should I just finish everything and go go to the incarnation now? Yeah. So I have a I have a counter opening speech, and I don't want to lose some of the questions I have from this part of it. So whereas I will try to keep uh, incarnation and Trinity separate, I don't think that you can completely. Although in my blog, I I did my best to do that. So I'd like to respond to the Trinity stuff right now and uh, pick up the incarnation. Before I get into my response proper, though, I just want to go back to something that I wasn't um, prepared for that you said. Uh, You don't believe in the split brain, mind, uh, two minds uh, scenario. I, I, yeah, I, I think that there's a constant correlation. One person equals one mind. We, we don't... Um, okay, why do you believe that in light of the split brain experiments, which seem to show otherwise? Uh, well, they don't, right? That's an interpretation that's given on the, the data. And I, I explain why in Substance Dualism Part 1. Um, so, I, I, again, that's sort of a presupposition, so it's off topic. But see, see the way I explain that in terms of an oscillation between the two hemispheres of the brain and the distinction between phenomenal versus access consciousness. But that, because that's off topic, um, I'll just say, yeah, like go and re- go and refer to part one of my substance dualism series, and I, I explain a different interpretation that is empirically equivalent. It explains the same data. Um, and is consistent with my my other okay. philosophical. Well, for the purpose of this conversation, you did bring it up, and I do not have total recall of all of the things that you spoke of. And we've got new members of uh, SNS who have, are not familiar with what you've said, and so it might be useful, since uh, most people are, in fact, familiar with the split brain experiments. Uh, it, it's simply not enough for you to say, yeah, I don't agree with it, and I've already talked about it. So uh, you don't, you're not agreeing with it doesn't really hold much water. I'm, I'm just wondering if we are ha- running into a definitional uh, problem right up front with, uh, you know, what a personality is. So when I, when I have agitated on uh, other discussion boards to get Christians to define what do you mean by personality, or I'm sorry, what do you mean by soul, um, what do you mean by spirit? What, what is this you're talking about that you're saying that we have? What they end up saying is something that sounds a lot like personality or consciousness. So if you're saying, and, and I feel like this is probably why you're trying to avoid saying that a person can have two personalities, because for you, it would be saying that a person has two souls. But the, but the experimentation seems to be fairly conclusive uh, that people can have more than one, what we would call complete personality, uh, within their within themselves, within within one body. Uh, yeah. And so I don't I I don't know why your squeamishness to say well we can't have two souls should uh, inform the skeptic that this this data is incorrect. So in the first place, I I do agree that. Uh, a one single person can have multiple personalities. A person and a personality are not equated necessarily. Um, in terms of in terms of my point of logical coherence, so I'm I'm not going to go down a red herring, but to relate what you're saying to 
I, I had a point I was going to raise the room. Okay, so okay, yeah. So in terms of logical coherence, let's pretend I do adopt your split brain uh, interpretation of this split brain experiments that there are. It does make sense for one person to have two minds. Um, well, okay. Well, well, then I can just go with group mind. If I and if I solve the other issue of how the father is preserved uh, through the dissolution, um, well, great. That then I'll simply go with uh, Brian Lefto. I'll, I'll adopt group mind monotheism, and there we have a logically coherent model that you, as a, a skeptic, are apparently happy with saying, "Yeah, that, that makes sense to me." So, well, you're right. I think so, if I were a Christian, last, one, one second, uh, Andrew. The last sure. time we had this conversation, sure. I brought up the split brain. Um, stuff and suggest it well maybe god is a multiple personality within mm -hmm. within one body and then and you rejected that idea yeah. <laughs> so uh i i was willing to you know try that out as as a coherent model but you weren't willing to consider it then yeah and i, I told you why I, I reject it but i'm saying if you're going to give it to me um then you can you can agree with Brian Lefto and disagree with me. And again, don't conflate a person with personality or personality. A, a person is the entire set of, of faculties that are sufficient for personhood. So things like sentience, um, intelligence, uh, uh, you have to be a moral agent. Um, th this goes way beyond just having certain personality traits um, or personalities, you know, like I'm I'm Jim Bob. In the split brain experiments, though, we are talking about uh, what appears to be different, different moral agencies. Um, so I, I'm not I'm I'm just not sure how you're defining person. Once again, we, we did this a little bit in the first round of this where I ask you to define a person. Uh, because I, I knew that that was important definitionally when we got into the Trinity. And so I guess uh, before going further, I would ask you to do that again. What do you, what exactly do you mean by person? And please don't define it by using person, the, the totality of personhood. That's not really a definition. What, what is a person in, in okay. your economy of thought? Okay, so before I define it, this look at my presuppositions. This is why I said I'm I'm presupposing particularism, not methodism. I don't need to spell out a list of criteria, necessary and sufficient criteria, to define personhood to know that there are persons. That the concept of a person is logically coherent. I can simply look and interact with you, and I just know, yep, there's persons. You are a person, even if I can't define it. So that. That's what particularism is. We, we first we can recognize instances of a certain type of thing, uh, and then based on our recognition of those clear cases, we we can develop a list of criteria and that sort of thing. I I don't need to go with Methodism, which is basically what Rene Descartes goes for and that sort of thing. No, before you can know anything, you have to have this set of complete criteria, and then you go like a checklist and that sort of thing. Um, so so that's what that presupposition was about. Because um, I, I knew that you would go down this route, and I wanted to avoid that. That said, let me answer your question, at least partially. I, I do, because I can recognize certain clear cases, I do have a checklist of some things. As I said, you have to be a moral agent. Um, you have to have free libertarian free will. That's part of being a person. Um, you have to 
uh, what's it called? You have to be intelligent and rational um, in, a, in a way that animals aren't. Um, these are Siamese these are, twin two persons. He could be, it, it depends on the case, but I'm guessing it's like, yeah, I would, I would say they are two persons. They're like Kerberos, uh, one, two persons within one be, physical being. So I'm not sure why, uh, did I lose you guys? No, we can hear you. Okay, okay sorry. We were just uh, talking uh, over you. Yeah, no, it's, it was, uh, the line went very quiet on this side. Okay. Uh, so, Definitely not us. <laughs> Yeah, no, I, I don't know why this is a problem uh, for the Christian in regard to the split brain experiment. So when the corpus callosum is severed for some reason, either insult or or surgery, and the left and right lobes of the of the cerebral cortex are are then uh, independent of each other because the um, because because this nerve bundle is cut. Um, I, I don't see why God can't just simply attach another soul uh, at that moment in, in the same way that he would uh, attach a soul at conception if, if that's what he does. I, I don't see any reason uh, to think that, that each side couldn't uh, manifest free will, uh, even though it might be the case that both sides can't act on that free will. Uh, equally, because one side has better access to fine motor skills or or whatever, right? I, I just don't see uh, why the split brain experiment should be a problem for a Christian. I just, God, I mean, okay. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't see why God can't attach souls willy nilly. Like, uh, sorry, not intended as an insult, mm -hmm. it, but it does seem that God can do this at any at yes. any moment in time. Yeah. So, I, yeah, I would I would agree that he can create perfectly free to create a second soul when this event happens he, here's one issue with that as, as you are familiar obviously with the experiments andrew um so only once, a little uh, once, I, I know the right words but okay so, so let, let's say we do take this view as a christian brian brian lefto would for example right um so so there are christians that do are happy to do what you say what happens at the end when they're reattached? You go right back to being one unified super consciousness or, or group mind. Does that mean God eliminates or annihilates that second soul? It, it only exists for the time when they're separated and then when they're re, reconnected, God zap, you're annihilated, that soul? I don't think so. I don't think that's a problem um, because we have, um, we have examples of people that, um, that appear to be brain dead. Right, they, they don't they don't have any higher order brain function. Now, some Christians might say, for instance, that that the soul is still attached, but I don't necessarily see any reason why that would be the case that the soul is still attached. Maybe maybe God takes those uh, souls right then at the moment of, of brain death, right? And so, if you reattach the the corpus callosum, maybe maybe God takes one or the other of them. Uh, for whatever mysterious reason he takes them. I, I just don't see, uh, I mean, you know, we're, we're free to wildly speculate about this all we want. Mm. Um, so I, I don't see why it would be a problem for God to say the one that I attached last, you know, some sort of first in, first out, uh, some sort of last in, first out model. You know, I, I attached this soul to the right you hemisphere. You attach Siamese twins and then you have, uh, individual people and one of them dies. I don't, this is not a, this is not a problem. Um, 
And I, so, I just don't have a problem with it. Yeah. So if, you're, if what you're saying is God is like a trimese twin or trip, trip, <laughs> you know, just going to invent stuff all over the place today. That's, I mean, that would be one way to begin to look at it. But I assure you, we're going to have some problems with that analogy, just like your uh, Severus analogy uh, here in a moment. But if, if, uh, you know, whereas we don't really have three-headed dogs in real life to examine, we do have Siamese twins to examine. And if, if you're saying God is like that, then we can proceed uh, with a functional analogy, and that would make it even easier for me to explain why the Trinity is not coherent. Okay, so okay, so trying to remember, you guys had points and I had counters. So with Andrew, okay, so if what you're saying, what you're saying at first sounds sounds problematic or implausible. So okay, God creates the second soul and the hemispheres are split. Uh, then when they're reattached, God takes that second soul, leaves the original soul that held the body, uh, and then takes the the other soul that just existed for I don't know however long the experiment lasts and uh, five minutes or. I don't know how long they, they last for, but, and then takes that up to heaven or, or hell or something like that. That sounds odd and weird. That doesn't comport well. Secondly, it, it's, we have to. The idea of souls sounds odd and weird to me. That <laughs> <laughs> was exactly my thought, as, as if you had some other version of this that didn't sound odd and weird. Well, yeah, at least in that respect, my, my thing makes more sense, but. Um, okay, and, and secondly, uh, you guys interrupt. Um, okay, yeah, so even on a Christian understanding, I don't take necessarily like a ghost in the machine type view. Um, there's also different versions of substance dualism. So the body in some versions is actually seen as a mode of the soul itself. My physical body is a part of my soul um, or a, a certain manifestation of of my soul so there's there's that um there's there's different ways of looking at how substance dualism uh reacts uh, works and so in that case one body is correlated to one soul you can't have two souls um within one body um obviously this the siamese twins example would uh, could be used to to counter something like that, and it will be. Which is why I ask you: Are you saying that God is like a a three-person Siamese twin? I'm getting to you. So, so I'm getting to David's objection now. So, remember, there's a fundamental difference with God, right? With with human beings, um, and Muslims will will use this, and they'll say, "Well, look, human beings. There's a constant correlation. One mind equals one soul." One person is one soul. There, there's an equation. Whereas in my example, actually, a mind isn't equated with a soul because God is a soul with three minds in it. Um, so just because in human experience, oh, one person or one mind equals one soul, doesn't mean that's necessarily the same with God. There, there it's one soul equals three minds. What's the uh, difference between a soul and a mind? Obvious, the, the obvious question that everyone's asking now. Because uh, I don't, I don't even know what that means. Uh, now, what so you the, said. yeah. So, so there's, there's the substance. The soul is a substance. 
uh, spiritual substance. Again, we're, we're not going to debate. I get that you guys don't believe that there is this thing, but you know, it doesn't matter whether you're Unitarian, Muslim, or Jewish, or whatever. Everyone believes God is a spiritual substance. So I'm taking that this is coherent as a given for the purpose of this show. Um, so he's one spiritual substance, and then he has three sets of cognitive faculties worthy okay, of a mind. So is, are you <laughs> using substance as a, a stand-in for body? Yeah, it, it's... Yeah. Okay, so then God is physical. The body is a physical substance. Um, and God is a spiritual substance that, um, with the incarnation, does have a physical element in it. So an analogy of, of this, because you were, you were asking your blog about... But let's picture yeah, I, God... I, 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 I want to save my blog for my presentation, if you don't mind. So I'm still I'm just I'm still just trying to get some basic information about what you have said so that I can know how to proceed. Okay, so, uh, so this way, God is a single spiritual substance as opposed to a physical substance. Okay, um, but it's but it's analogous. It, when I when I talk yeah, about my yeah. body, it would be analogous to God's substance. What you're calling substance is that right? Yeah, like a, like okay. Kerberos. He has one dog body let's say um physical body physical substance okay so we, we we will probably have to get into a little bit of a difference between body and substance as we talk because i suspect they're not exactly the same but as long as they're roughly analogous for the moment um at least i can follow what you're talking about yeah i just yeah. want to know does it take a body to be a person no okay all right so I'm, I'm sure someone else out there has that same question, one body, one person, or, uh, and so it doesn't take a body to, to be a person. Uh, yeah, I mean, obviously okay. there are dead, dead people that shed your body um, and they, they exist as persons because they, they have a, persons are general, spiritual substances, they are the soul. Um, and then they become embodied. Um, that's sort of getting into the incarnation bit. But, okay. Yeah. Fair uh, enough. Cool. Um, okay, so, yeah, let, let me move on to the incarnation then. Um, no, I have oh, not made cool. my presentation about the Trinity yet. <laughs> yeah, but so you're, I'm still, well, I'm still so, camping out here. I still have a few things to say. Okay. And I don't, I don't want them to get lost before we talk about this separate thing about the Trinity. So okay. uh, part of my presentation here is just to... Uh, question and get solid definitions. So this is important, uh, if you please. So I asked you earlier, uh, would it be proper to think of God as a three-headed um, Siamese twin? And I was still waiting on an answer for that. Yeah, well, that that would be the same uh, the same as the Kerberos example. That's basically what he is: is a, th a three-headed dogs uh siamese twins so to speak okay. um, and it, you it, said last time we talked about this that there was a dis that uh you were being careful to use words like distinct as opposed to separate right uh so the the three persons in the godhead were distinct but inseparable what do you mean by inseparable in this case 
Right. That's that's a good point. So so as I said, um, many probably Arthur um, to, to name drop. He he might disagree with me because there are later creeds um, and there are partialism is known as a heresy. Um, so. When you hear, in one of my sources, I, I gave a humorous four-minute video by Lutheran satire, and he, he would call me, that's partialism, uh, Patrick, or whatever like that. And it's basically saying, well, look, the Godhead, Jesus is one-third of God. Uh, God the Father is one-third of God. Uh, the Holy Spirit is one-third of God. I say yes. A lot of Christians would say, no, you can't do that. Um, but the reason I do that is I, I think what the real issue of these creeds are when we say God is not uh, a third of three parts or is not sep uh, in he's inseparable and what we're trying to say is look you can't none of them are expendable they, they are all logically necessary for God to exist necessarily you can't cease to have three person divine persons within the Trinity you can't take Jesus out uh, of the divine um, out of the soul, so to speak, um, out of that unifying soul. Does that make sense? So, um, you can't take his, you can't really. take one person's mind out from the unifying spiritual substance and make him a separate substance all by him, so independent. Whereas I understand you can separate some Siamese twins. Um, yeah. Not all that you can separate them. Yes, um, and they're not Siamese twins anymore, but not they're not any less themselves. And one person, one of the twins could die, and the other can live. Right. Uh, and so, uh, are, are you saying God is inseparable in that way? Um, because remember, I'm I'm trying to visualize God now is this Siamese twin with three heads, right? Uh, so and and, we're, and so you're saying there's no way to separate them, and have God still be God, right? Because because I'm using the physical substance as sort of an analogy for this soul substance, right? And obviously it doesn't work. Physical substances can be divided. Uh, human beings, the, the person or the mind of those, the two minds, the two persons um, are not uh, equated, are not um, contained with, they're not a essentially a physical substance. They're technically a spiritual substance or a soul like God. And each of those two persons have souls of their own. So this would be an example of two souls in one physical substance. Uh, and that's not analogous to God, who's one soul, but with three minds in that single soul. Um, and you can't take out a mind from that spiritual substance. It's indivisible in that way. Um, so and what if one of them died? They can't. It's logically impossible for them to do that. So Jesus didn't die. No. Uh, well, Logos didn't die. Put it that way. I'll explain. So let, can I can I get it? Because you're bringing this example up. So here here's a way. Pretend the soul is like a big dodgeball. It's got, and then I pin three buttons saying God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. The, these represent the minds, the three minds in the soul, in that dodgeball, that single soul. 
uh, on the surface of the, the thing, right? When God, when Jesus became incarnate, it's like I put a piece of tape, pretend that's the physical human body. We're getting into the incarnation though. And then I, I, I tape that over the button of God the Son. So now he's got a, a Jesus body. They're still united in that soul, single soul, like the three minds are still part of the soul. When Jesus died physically and is experienced biological death, that's just that doesn't mean that the logos stopped existing as part of the divine Godhead. His his divine mind still existed in that soul the whole time. It's just you ripped off that physical body, that piece of tape from the button. Three days later, you put the tape back on over the button. He reassumes. So, so what happened with Jesus' death is he lost his human nature. Uh, just, just like the souls up in heaven aren't humans. They've lost their bodies. Their, their bodies are worm food. They're corpses. Um, there are no human beings up in heaven except for Jesus uh, at this moment. They're, they're disembodied um, souls that are existing. So they're persons uh, within a spiritual substance, but they're not, they don't have the physical substance to be um, considered human beings. Uh, and that gets into, well, what is the essence of the human nature, which I'm going to describe in my, when I get to the incarnation. Okay. But uh, as far as the three who's and one what, you are describing a what as a kind of a, an analogy to this, the bodily substrate that can, that contains the personalities contain sure. doesn't seem right either though, because these guys seem to be all over the map. I'm not entirely sure in what way you say they're together in one substance when they can be all over the cosmos in different places. Uh, because God, they seem, they seem separable to me. Yeah, but they're they're not. The model posits that they're not because God's soul is omnipresent, um, in light of all the like as in pan pandeism, um, omni God's substance is everywhere. We're we're swimming in God God goo right now. So again, I I deal with this in my show Substance Dualism Part One, where I. Um, explain how the di there's different ways that God can be considered omnipresent. I believe he's holomerically omnipresent. So it's, he's kind of like a, God um, is everywhere within the universe, but he, he doesn't have space, the, the property being spatially extended like a type of goo. Um, it, it's the same way that the, I believe the soul is holomerically present in the body. Um, you know, so let, it, let me just it, say, I don't, I personally don't understand the idea of separable or inseparable. If, you know, God can be in, you know, the, the third heaven and Jesus can be, uh, on earth zero, uh, and the Holy Spirit can be, you know, strutting about as a pigeon somewhere. Uh, th th those seem like separate things to me. Um, they can each be embodied in different ways in different places and yet you're saying but they're not separate so that's just i that's that doesn't make any sense to me and I, right. i'm willing to leave that at, yeah that doesn't make any sense to me and we'll see if well, it makes any just, more sense to the audience okay well let let me just say though we we've gone over this um in in um number one i i went over the 
what it means for God, God to be omnipresent. If you can accept God as omnipresent, then that's that's great. You've got him on earth. You've got him in heaven. It's it's not a problem. There are different right, senses. No, I can't, I, but let, let, so let me I get that. I get that's a Christian there, presupposition. Let, let me finish, though. There are different senses, right, but there are different senses in which God can be omnipresent. So I, I cover this uh, in my Substance Dualism Part 1 and or in a show with David, uh, The Coherence of Christian Theism Part 1. And I... Uh, you know, sort of discuss how omnipresence works. So that's sort of off topic. Let's just, I've got this given that God is omnipresent. And that's what I mean by this, this rubber ball, this dodgeball, that's the soul or spiritual substance that is omnipresent and it's got the buttons. And then it's just kind of the human nature is just like a piece of tape put over or clothing the God, the sun button on the dodgeball. Um, so the ball itself is everywhere is omnipresent. Um, and then Jesus is spatially located and spatially extended through being covered by the tape uh, in one particular place, but the soul is still everywhere. Um, so yeah, that's that's how I'd answer that. Um, yeah, a- anything else on the Trinity, David? Or because I think it'll help when I go through the incarnation a bit. Yeah. So uh, it could be that I can save most of my stuff here for incarnation I'm not sure I think the subordination stuff uh, probably belongs in the trinity though uh, it does yeah. the incarnation so I have uh, some very specific uh, questions about subordination uh, so for the listener uh, there is a particular let's call it heresy called subordinationism um, and basically what it uh, what it means is that Jesus and the Holy Spirit and Jehovah uh, are are not at the same level. Uh, that that God's at the top, and then Jesus and the Spirit are maybe at a second level below Him, or maybe the Spirit is, you know, at a third level below Jesus. But the idea that they are all equal is is not the case that that one is subordinate to the other so that would be it's kind of a brief description of subordinationism and i would suggest that the bible itself provides a lot of what i would uh, consider subordinationist passages and so this is one of those areas where the view of the trinity if it does not involve some kind of subordinationism does not um ring coherent to me uh, because of very certain, very clear passages uh, in Scripture about the relationship between the Father and the Son, for instance. So um, that's just kind of a brief introduction to subordinationism. What did I leave out? Um, okay, so I would just say this. So there is strong evidence in the creeds uh, dating back to the earliest time. As I said, Logos Christology influenced by pagan ideas and, you know, same way Philo of Alexandria emphasized this. Um, Now, it could be true biblically. There are verses in Revelation or 1 Corinthians 15, 28. There isn't a lot of support for this. That's an overestimation. That's you overstating your case in the Bible. There are only a handful of verses which may imply this, I would say. Um, And with those verses, as I said, gospels. But anyway, I, I, 
I disagree that it's overstating my case. I think that if you include the time when Jesus was on earth um, in talking about his relationship with the Father, um, there there's a lot of subordinationist passages or ideas in there. But uh, uh, by by subordinationist, then are you t are you including things that, uh, like for example, I would include under the subliminal self and the incarnation part, like you. His state of his he was in a state of humiliation during his time on Earth. Are you using that to say, well, that means he's subordinate in his? Uh, yes, I okay. would include that, but I I'm I'm careful not to most of the time when I talk about the subordination in his passages. I try to talk about the, the passages that did not include um, the Gospels in his time on Earth. So you can you can still get the subordinationist teaching outside of the Gospels, but um, yeah, yeah I, I recognize that that can be an area of controversy. Yeah, and and so David, raised, uh, I raised a good point here actually. So for the audience, remember, distinguish um, Jesus in his human nature is subordinate to God the Father. He, he in his state of humiliation, we don't care. That that's an issue for the incarnation, but. With the Trinity, when we're separating that from the Incarnation, just looking at the logical coherence of the, the Trinity proper, pretend pretend the Incarnation never happened, and God the Son, the, aka the Logos, God the Father, and the Holy Spirit just existed. This is in, we're referring to his pre-incarnate state. Um, well, and, and his post-incarnate state, uh, I think, too. Right. So could, yeah, I mean, his. so just taking out the four books of the gospels um we can we can look at jesus uh or logos before that and after that i, I think equally i okay so subordinationism is not going to be a problem post ascension for me but that's part of the incarnation for, forget about that just look right now at his pre incarnate state because we haven't gotten to the incarnation part yet um god is not on this is where i make the, the distinction between the ontological trinity where the three persons are totally equal and the functional trinity or or others scholars call it about the divine economy within the godhead and that comes about if god had never created ontologically speaking all three are equal there, there's no subordination entailed at all with creation, they assume... I, okay, but I disagree with that, though, because... Okay, well, I... I, I right, you, so, well, but let me, let me just at least let the audience know where the disagreement would be. Mm -hmm. um, and the disagreement would be, at least many Christians, actually, I don't know where I would be if I cared about it today, um, would say that Jesus is the begotten Son of God, and he was the divine Son of God before he was incarnated on the earth. He was always pre-existent, the begotten son of God. Um, in fact, I was just, I was doing some reading on this in preparation for this podcast earlier this morning. Uh, and I ran into more of those opinions than, than the other way around. And so this is, this is a view within mainstream Christianity that uh, Jesus was eternally the begotten son of God, not simply a matter of his incarnation. So, so David's right. That is a view with some Christians. It's one that I 
disagree with. Some some Christians are bound by later creeds and that sort of thing. So I, I think they go along with that. I would just say this, this, this title, God the Son, uh, and this begottenness applies to Jesus in his incarnate state, not his divine, not to the divine logos. You'll look in vain for verses that refer to God the Son in the Old Testament or something like that, um, whereas it does refer to him in other senses, being the divine wisdom or uh, the angel of the Lord and that sort of thing. Um, so, yeah, I would just I would just disagree. My interpretation of these verses, and again, we, this is something you could have raised if we did a show debating the New Testament. You, you could have done did this in the podcast, and um, we could have debated what is the proper interpretation. But I, I'm just saying that in terms of logical coherence, I believe these verses do not say what you're saying they do. I recognize that this this is a valid interpretation. You're not ridiculous for reading these verses that way. It, it could be um, that there is an ontological subordinationism. I find that independently as a philosopher problematic in terms of great making properties. And I also see that there are there's an at least equally possible, if not in my opinion, more probable interpretations that um, say that this begotten is referring to Jesus' incarnate human nature and, and that sort of thing, and that other verses saying, you know, God, Jesus will submit to the Father, making him all in all uh, at the end of the world and that sort of thing in 1 Corinthians 15, 28, that this is referring to the functional role that the Godhead, each person within the Godhead chose to right. so take on a certain function. I personally don't think this is uh, limited to incarnation uh, stuff, and if you want to wait till we get more properly into the incarnation, we can, but I'd like to go ahead and read the passages that I've highlighted now since we have alluded to them uh, so that the audience un uh, understands what we're talking about. Also, sure. I would suggest even if you say that Jesus is not the eternal begotten son, you still have a problem with um, Jesus being subordinate. Uh, in in fact, I th the word that I want is um, uh, uh, <laughs> I've lost it now. It, it's a word uh, that we talk about in modal logic. Um, uh, he is contingent. Okay. Um, okay. Contingent. And uh, so with, with or without the car incarnation, he's still contingent because he's the word. The, the logos of something is contingent on the something. Uh, so it, it, the a word does not exist by itself. The angel of the Lord is, is a messenger of God. It's still a contingent being. Uh, and so even the descriptions of things that you might say are Jesus in the Old Testament you know, even if they don't use "quote unquote" subordinationist language, they still use the language of contingency, uh, and so I don't, I don't see how you escape that. But the particular passages that we're talking about, maybe we talk about them more now, maybe we talk about them more in a little bit. First uh, Corinthians fifteen twenty four through twenty eight. I'll just read all four of those. Um, Dale, don't you want to read that? Because I hate reading stuff. Um, um, I'll, I'll, read, I'll read the short one. Um, that, was, that one's 1 Corinthians 15, 24, 28. Uh, while you're finding that, I will read 1 Corinthians 11, 3. Uh, and it says simply this, uh, But I want you to realize that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of the woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. When it says Christ here, he's talking about the, the risen Jesus, not the 
incarnate Jesus, the, the current Jesus of today. Uh, and he speaks in terms of a pecking order, uh, a headship. And then when you pair that with the, the later verse, uh, Dale, if you please. Um, so the, then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. So this is referring to Jesus uh, or God the Son. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God, uh, Hotheos, God the Father, has put all things in subjection under his feet. Again, his is Jesus. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. Okay, so once again, we can talk about them now, we can talk about them later, but these are a couple of passages that seem to define a relationship um, that is subordinate. And so when you talk about, well, yeah, but it's just functionally subordinate that they are... <laughs> substantially equal I, I it just sounds like rhetoric to me yeah um well i guess you just you need to that's where it comes down to biblical hermeneutics like i get in isolation like i said you're not ridiculous it's a plausible reading um dr michael brown for example would agree with you um or at least seems uh, <laughs> <laughs> no <laughs> Um, well, I, I take that as a compliment. Like that, that shows that you've got something here. Um, but yeah, you need to. Under, I, I think that my view, in the light of all of Scripture, as well as uh, independent philosophical reasons, uh, makes the the functional interpretation of these verses or the, the divine economy interpretation uh, of these verses more probable. Uh, it's not, I wouldn't say it's even very, very probable. Like, I, I, I think that you've got a, a plausible thing here. And th this is why, think of it, the earliest models agreed with you. Logos Christology from the, the second century early fathers, um, Philo of Alexandria, they, uh, the Nicene Creed, for goodness sakes, in, implies the son was begotten uh, in this way. And uh, they think of it in an ontological sense. So, yeah, I guess it just comes down to how you interpret and how you engage with biblical hermeneutics, not just taking one proof or two proof texts. Um, there's also other ones in Revelation, by the way, that are similar to this. Um, you know, and, and taking those and, and, oh, well, that proves it. It's the same as like Calvinists. They just take Romans 28, uh, or sorry, Romans um, 8, chapter 8, verses 28 to 30. And well, see that that proves it. Everything's predetermined. Justification, sanctification. It's it's all one link, predetermined link or something. And if you just read that verse, yeah, I can I can see what the Calvinists are saying. Is that it's a plausible reading of just that. Uh, well, I haven't you... just read one verse though, uh, so right. lets the audience You're... get the idea that I've only spent ten minutes looking for proof texts. That couldn't be further from the truth. I have spent hours uh, researching this over the course of a lifetime and recently just over the course of the last couple of weeks knowing that this uh, topic was coming up. And so uh, I don't actually know what I think 
hermeneutically is the best reading of this stuff, I, I'm just going to have to be epistemically humble enough to say that there are multiple ways of looking at this stuff. Um, yeah. But I, I certainly, yeah. I certainly take to the universalist uh, way of looking at it. I think it's simpler, cleaner. Um, I think it requires fewer uh, hypotheses, uh, fewer additions. Uh, and so that's that's me at the moment on this. Uh, but just understand, I grew up a Trinitarian, and so I would have I would have looked at these passages very differently before. But I would have said that my view was incoherent before. So, for instance, reading this and saying, "Well, it's functionally, you know, uh, subordinate, but substantially equal," we would have used as a an analogy to that the husband and wife relationship. But let me tell you, there's nothing more um, lopsided than the fundamentalist misogynist view of the role of husbands and wives. And so if you really think that that's what the relationship of Jesus and God is, then they are not equal, uh, not, in, not in any sense of the word. No, I, I don't think that's true then. So forget about husband and wives, that, that biased, uh, that me and you, David, a real example. Uh, as partners, we're, we're equal partners. We each have an equal say. There has been, I'm not going to get into anything private, but recently there is an example where I submitted to you. I, I took on the role of submitting to your concern for your benefit, even though I, I strongly disagree and fundamentally with what we did. Likewise, you, um, and this is, this is public, so I'll mention the specifics on this, but you have a strong conviction that being allowed to swear is important to you as a, as a skeptic. Um, but for me, it's it's really important because it offends multiple Christian listeners who've told me they don't like this this kind of thing. So, um, in in that sense, you submitted to me. You, that doesn't imply an ontological. We're not equal partners in SNS, but you are taking on the role of submitting. I, I hear your concerns about swearing, and I, I want to honor that. Let's let's compromise. So in that case, we both submitted to each other. So we allow. Uh, we allow for spirit. equal partners, Dale. And the partnership that the Bible is describing is not a partnership where the father is submitting to the son. It's a partnership where the father says, you go and die. And the son says, I don't want to, but I guess so. That, no, that's BS. The, the Bible, the son does want to do it. He adopts this from well, eternity. Except for the time when he said, uh, take this, let this cup pass from me. But if it be your will... This is, look, this is the thing. It's always the Father's will, and the Son is yes, submitting to the yes. Father. <laughs> the Father is submitting right this second to Jesus. Jesus is ruling sovereignly right now until, he, it's in this verse that you had me read, until all things are put in subjection, Jesus is boss. God the Son is boss right now. Okay, um, I think that many Christians would look at that reading and call that heretical. Now, I don't know whether they would call it a damned heresy. <laughs> I, I don't think yeah um <laughs> but, but no way. i don't i don't think that there are that many uh lines of mainstream christianity uh that see it that way maybe this is a good time to bring in andrew who has a well, finger well, on let me say mainstream this christianity. So, so andrew before you come in let me just say this so as i said david is right that there are multiple valid ways. Uh, you have to assess. I, I've said what I personally believe is more probable. Um, it's it's not strong. That's why I, that's why my model of the Trinity, it doesn't um, 
preclude what they, this subordination is an ontological subordination within the Godhead. Um, but it doesn't, um, it doesn't go one way or it doesn't adjudicate one way or the other. You can, my Trinitarian model can still be true independent of, of this question uh, of the subordinationism issue. Um, and yeah, you, you can decide for yourselves what you, what interpretation you think is better, but let, let's take David's, let's pretend David is in his interpretation is correct. How might I, how might I deal with this? Because I, well, that if you're saying God, the son and the Holy spirit derive in some way on from the father, this is less great. That means that some divine persons are greater. God, the father has the property of being unbegotten. Um, and that's greater than these others. So in that case, I would go back to the Trinity monotheism. Remember, God is, is what is really the great God. The Trinity is the maximal great being. It's not that the Father is a maximal great being or the Son is a maximal great being or that the Holy Spirit is a maximal great being. It's the Trinity is the maximal great being of the ontological argument. Uh, that is, quote unquote, God. The word Yahweh refers to the Trinity, not God the Father, uh, although in the Old Testament, sometimes it does refer to that, and you can look at the pronouns to identify when it's identifying one individual versus Yahweh as a whole. Um, but um, yeah, so so what I would say is, look, the whole has various properties in light of the properties of its individual, the persons, divine persons within it. Um, so. God is still unbegotten because God the Father is unbegotten and he's still a greatest thing regardless of the fact that these the other two members are quote unquote less great than the Father individually but remember these are united as one whole there's still only one soul that has the property of being unbegotten and the property of being begotten in his other form so he's this doesn't diminish God's maximal greatness because the maximal greatness argument of the ontological argument only applies to the Trinity, doesn't apply to any of the individuals under my model of, tr of Trinity monotheism. So if, I, if I'm forced to go down David's route, it still could be solved um, philosophically as, as to how the Son and Holy Spirit could be derived from the Father, and, and that wouldn't diminish my view as, as God proper, uh, the Godhead, as a maximal great being. Uh, so yeah, and Andrew, sorry, I'll turn it to you. And uh, and then you can pick up with your incarnation, um, sure. Directly following that, and then I will talk about the wear man and why that little joke doesn't work. <laughs> <laughs> the man, man, you mean? <laughs> Go okay. ahead. Okay, so my flesh eye and my glass eye glazed over. Um, somewhere in this, somewhere in the middle of all of this. Look, I, I will, I will say that in my time as a Christian, I never encountered a sermon, and and and, and so all of the people that sat with me, uh, we we never encountered a sermon where Jesus wasn't preached as subordinate. Now, I'm, I'm totally willing to acknowledge that that's a, a tiny fraction of Christianity and, and, and possibly not representative of Christianity. But, uh, you know, we are talking about 
Baptist churches, the second largest denomination uh, among Christians. Uh, the the few Methodist sermon uh, services that I attended, uh, a few Episcopalian services, bunch of Church of Christ services, um, and and I don't think that the average Christian cared uh, about this particular issue. There's there's some sort of of mental gymnastics that allows Christians um, to just not care about whether Jesus is subordinate to and co-equal with God. Uh, and, and, and so I think I think there's just some I think there's just some some cognitive dissonance that Christians allow on this topic. Christians are perfectly willing to say Jesus is subordinate. And, and here's, here's one of those ways. Only the father knows the, the time of the return, right? And, and, and right there, Jesus is acknowledging his subordination. Probably the most important moment uh, for the Christian story, the, the return of Jesus. Right. And and we have this 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 supposed earthly character that is all man and all God, acknowledging that not even in his uh, in his deity form does he know the time of his own return. And and so whether whether Jesus is or isn't subordinate to God, um, I think, is an open question. Uh, among most Christians and one that they simply don't care about. Okay. All right. Yeah. So I guess just to one f to end off on on the Trinity before and moving before moving on to the incarnation. And so, Andrew, yeah, thank you for for giving your take there. As I said, I really respect you, um, and I, I I like getting your opinion because it's something new that I don't get every week. Um, I, I will just say well, this. I don't know. Was that even on topic? I'm afraid I'm. Ended up but but I'll tell you this: you you just broke my heart. I I can handle hearing from David or Darren or uh, you know the Brian and that saying that the topic itself is just not important. Um, but from you, that that hurt a little. Um, but um, no, well, I, I'm not saying it shouldn't be important. I, it, per, perhaps it should be. But I don't. I don't think that 2.4 billion, uh, 2.4 billion Christians on the planet, right? Yeah. And and how often is this a topic of conversation in the pulpit? Yeah, I think it's very rare. This is why I think I think uh, my my own mom is a heretic. She's a modalist until I corrected her or something, and very recently, and I myself was a heretic. So I, I think that you're right that. The majority of Christians don't spend too much effort really trying to work out the details on this in the same way that uh, people in the ancient times, this this was life and death. Uh, people were persecuted and killed uh, based on these questions. And so, so I understand. So number one, I'll agree with this. There, there's a reason for that, because working out the what uh, about God isn't essential to salvation, right? The, the Bible just says, look, you just need to know uh, there's one God, one Yahweh, and that there are distinct divine persons, at the very least, Jesus, 
uh, is distinct from God the Father, and he shares in that divine identity. You you believe that? You're saved. You, you don't have to work out, well, what does it mean to be three persons, one being? Um, it, it, that's not essential to be a Christian. You just have those minimal Bible things. That said, my goodness, I, I, when I'm sharing this, this is a, a a passion project for me. I mean, if you're a true Christian, you should love um, going above and beyond the Bible and learning as much as God's truth as you can. This is the nature of God and is a central doctrine of, of Christianity. Uh, like this is, a, you should be, if you're a Christian, you should be loving this. And I think that there there are a lot of Christians that appreciate it. We, we've had five people join as followers since, since yesterday, just because I posted this blog. Um, so, so I don't think it's as, um, I think that there is a hunger for this. It's just that there's not a lot of material like this out here that really tackle this issue in depth. But I, yeah, I, I think, yeah. I think there's another issue there. Uh, just to just to kick this around a little bit, it's going to be very slightly tangential, but I think part of what you're encountering here for some Christians is that there is a fear of uh, to use to use your words? There is a fear of going um, sort of above and beyond the Bible, whatever that whatever that might mean, right? Because um, while while there's this great notion of heaven and and people really want to go there and and, and whatever, and I you know I don't buy in, but there's an there's an equally and perhaps even stronger motivation to be very careful about uh, about what you say about the Bible because you can end up in hell. And I, I very, very strongly think that that causes a certain kind of analysis paralysis among a lot of Christians. In fact, um, I don't, the, the Christians I know, again, this isn't, uh, this is perhaps not representative of, of Christianity as a whole, but the Christians I know don't do a lot of opposition reading because they're very afraid to end up in a place where they do support something that will ultimately send them to hell. So I don't, I don't think that Christianity lends itself uh, particularly well among the rank and file uh, to do this kind of deep thinking. Yeah, so let me uh, add something to this because I, I had it in my mind to do this at the beginning of um, my segment, but it never really started off properly. So I, I just want to insert this here because this kind of answers, I think, the question, Dale, of why more people aren't interested, uh, is even on the Christian side, maybe especially on the Christian side. So I just want to read a couple of very quick passages from um, from a uh, an academic, so you'll appreciate that. Uh, and uh, it was from uh, their recent writings. Uh, and it's uh, this. The uh, Trinity and Incarnation Doctrine are vitally important to the truth of Christian faith. People throughout history have been persecuted and killed over this matter. Uh, this is from Dale. <laughs> and then this is from his blog. Yeah, um, this, is, this is this is something so volatile that history is strewn with the dead bodies of people who dare disagree uh, on this subject. And then, if I can read 
another passage from another great sage. Uh, I can perfectly accept the notion that many, if not most Christians throughout history, if you press, would probably advance heretical models of what exactly the Trinity or the Incarnation entails. Also from Dale. So the, the fact is, people understand that the moment you step foot into this quagmire, you are risking, depending on where you are, death or uh, accusation of heresy, which in some places and times is the same thing. Um, so even you, Dale, think that most Christians are heretics, though not damned heretics. Right. Uh, on this matter. Why would anyone ever raise their hand and step up to uh, present a notion of the Trinity when, by your own admission in other places, eh, it's, not, it's not really essential? So I, I think most of them take my approach, which is leave it a mystery and let well enough alone. Okay, so put it this way. So, so thank you for making the distinction, right? Well, when I say most people are heretics, I'm talking about heretics as defined by the creeds uh, throughout history. Damnable heretics are ones that violate the essential uh, propositions that the Bible itself, that I outlined in the first two shows. So one can be a quote-unquote heretic, but still be saved. Maybe I'm a heretic. Maybe my model of the Trinity is wrong, um, but I, I'm still saved because my model, I think that my model is consistent with the Bible. But you said Swinburne and, is probably going to hell. So no, I didn't. I mean, honestly, how many people, how many Christians are going to raise their hands and comment this week? Listen, listen, you got that, the, they might be going it, to hell. Okay, so David, that was, you missed, you didn't listen to me. I said specifically he wouldn't go, he might not go to hell. It depends on what he's aware of or not. If he's aware of the logical implications of his view, then he's going to hell. But what I wanted to say in, in regards, why would people take the risk? Why would I dare take the risk? Here's why, because it's a damnable heresy to commit a sin of omission to avoid sanctification. It is it is our duty as Christians to obey the commands of God. God orders us to learn as much as we can about God's truth and to not live in a state of falsity or lies or ignorance. Um, these are biblical commands. It, it's like saying, well, I'm afraid I might become a heretic, so I'm not gonna read the Bible. No, you get that thing out, you get your hands dirty and you try your best with the help of the Holy Spirit. And uh, so long, so long as you're within the, a real seeker, a real true Christian who is within the essential ingredients and doing your best to do so, then you'll be you'll be saved. You can't be afraid of learning about God's truth. You have to trust that that God will guide you uh, in in coming to knowledge of the truth. You know, other, otherwise, let's throw at the Bibles. My goodness, I can get confused by. Uh, some verse in the Bible, like this verse in 1 Corinthians 15, so I'm just, just going to shut my eyes and, and, and not bother getting into it. That That's a sin of omission, that, and that could be considered a damnable heresy. You're you're not getting being willing to be sanctified or to learn and grow uh, in the church and mature. Okay. Uh, so, yeah, that— I, yeah. I actually— So on the side of the damnable— <laughs> That's right. I tried to stand up for you, Christians, and give you a way to deal with this thing so that you don't have to worry about the incoherence of it. But we're about to get into, in a few minutes, the incarnation, and there's simply no escaping the incoherence of this belief. 
So if you want to hang on to some semblance of faith, you should stop listening now. Because it's about to get bad. All right. And I mean, I don't... Well, just just a just a, a thought for the damnable heretics. Um, I I read the Bible through. Mm-hmm. I didn't only read it through. I studied it through. I didn't only study it through. I mean, I memorized ten verses a day for years. And what I ultimately came away with was, the closer I studied it, the less likely it was that that it could be true and and so i think that it's a little unfair to us uh, uh you know maybe we're not even damnable heretics we're we're alien sinners right uh to to uh, snatch a phrase right out of uh right out of the church of christ mm-hmm. um but uh, you know i i reporting for myself even though other people uh, might disagree. I think I was, uh, I think I was uh, a pure form of true seeker, whatever whatever that might be. And uh, I studied the verses. I, I studied them intimately, and uh, and ultimately I walked away. And if that is offensive to God, uh, and that is what the Christians are afraid of. That's why they don't want to do op- uh, opposition reading. Uh, and and this is the fear that God has laid forth a path that Christians can follow that will lead them out of the church and ultimately uh, to damnation uh, simply by trying to grow in the way that you suggest. So so I think so in the first place hopefully that's now changed. Maybe maybe God has brought you and I do believe that you are a real seeker. Um, just based on my interactions and what I know from you, I, I could be wrong in that that assessment. I, maybe you th- you think you said that I'm a real seeker. Maybe I'm maybe I'm not. Maybe I'm so committed to to Christ, I've, I've lost that or something. But I completely that, accept that you are uh, flying in the face of uh, at least one of your regular listeners who will probably give me grief. Uh, you know, <laughs> over over on uh, at least one of the boards. Right? Yeah, one that possibly be. I, I completely accept that you are doing your level best mm-hmm. uh, at, at uh, what is an admittedly high level for any of us. You are doing your level best to be fair about the information you see. Excellent. Yeah. So, so yeah, so, so I, w- I would say the same about you. Um, and I would say the same. I think David is a real, real seeker on this. He, he reached out for help. He, he's being humble and admitting what he doesn't know. And he, he's, doing a great job so i think all three of us are, are being real seekers on this issue and yet you guys are, are coming to the conclusion that it's not making sense so so number one hopefully with my model i've helped change that a little bit but even if not i'm i'm not afraid you you did the right thing i'm i'm more on the side of someone like david and andrew who actually put the effort to to trying to figure out getting into scripture figuring out what does this doctrine teach and in the end, they walked away because that didn't make sense. You guys are acting better than fake Christians that are just afraid. I don't want to learn what the Trinity is because I, I don't want to learn about God because I don't have faith 
that God is true and that he'll provide me with the real answers. So I'm just going to not read the Bible. I'm going to stay a baby instead of maturing. um, You know, I'm not going to get to the meat of scripture and that sort of thing. No, I fully believe that so long as you guys, so long as you remain a real seeker, before you reach the point of no return, you you will come to the truth. That that's my caveat. So I'm not afraid of people walking away as real seekers in the here and now. Um, and I can allow that. Okay, you guys did your your dangest to try and understand the Trinity, and because of that, because it didn't make sense to you, that was your one, or at least one of your reasons for walking away. I, I can live with that in the here and now because I have faith that God will eventually reveal the truth and hopefully he he brought me here um to you guys so maybe i've played a a cog in that machine maybe i've sparked something within you guys to go well maybe there's more to this than i understood and i I can go back and relook at it or look at dale's sources and oh they they recommend books okay maybe i'll spend 20 bucks and buy a book and read that and in the end, it might lead you guys back to it. So, yeah, we don't have to be afraid of, oh, well, shoot, look, he looked at it and, and he apostatized. He left in the here and now. Have faith in God. Trust that in the end, all will be be made good. Um, yeah, so, all right, so so incarnation. Um, I think we're almost at the two-hour mark. So. so let's see if we can do incarnation in one hour. <laughs> all right, good. <laughs>